Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Sarah Tyson, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Mona Simeon, lecturer in philosophy at the University of Glasgow. Her new book, Shifty Speech and Independent Thought, is just out from Oxford University Press. At the intersection of epistemology and philosophy of language is a puzzle. First, it seems we don't need less evidence for a claim that we know something if the practical importance of the knowledge claim shifts. For example, if I have evidence that the bank will be closed on a particular day, my knowledge doesn't shift if it is more or less important for me to go to the bank. Second, it seems we shouldn't assert that we know something if we don't. And third, it seems that if the practical importance of a knowledge claim shifts, we should back up our claim with more evidence. So is knowledge really insensitive to shifts in the practical stakes? Or should the knowledge norm of assertion be abandoned? In her new book, Simeon critically considers various types of responses to this shiftiness dilemma before defending her own solution. On her view, assertions obey both epistemic and non-epistemic norms, and what is permissible to assert shifts depending on all things considered judgments that rely on a contextually determined mix of these norms. She also generalizes her approach to other types of epistemically relevant speech acts, such as conjecturing and making moral assertions, and argues that only the latter require special treatment due to differences in audience understanding. This is an exciting interview that covers a lot of very interesting territory. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Mona Simeon. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hi, thanks a lot for having me. So exciting. Uh, this is this is uh, a real opportunity to get up to date about what's going on at the intersection of philosophy of language and um, epistemology. Um, but before we get to the book itself, um, can you maybe tell us a bit about yourself and how you discovered philosophy and then how you came to write this book? Yeah, so it's a it's a funny story actually. I was a professional journalist before this, so philosophy was not my first career, and I was a foreign correspondent uh, from Belgium, and you know Belgium is a small country with only so much stuff to do. So at some point I thought, well, I need a new hobby, uh, since um, you know uh, not much to do with my time. Um, so I thought, well, how about I. I studied something new and I looked around and it turned out that the only programs offered in English uh, in Belgium were theology and philosophy. And since I was not particularly interested in theology, I thought, well, philosophy doesn't mean much to me, so I might as well just go and do that. Maybe it turns out to be very interesting. But I must say I had no idea what was actually going on in the field. Um, I come from, um, you know, an Eastern European country that was majorly dominated for a long time by Marxist thought. So that's one thing that I knew about philosophy. Um, and for the rest, uh, most of the stuff that I knew were about, you know, historical figures like Plato and Kant, and that was about it. And uh, I, I started, you know, studying philosophy and in my first introduction to philosophy class, um, I was supposed to go and we were all supposed to go and sign up for presentations. Uh, in the beginning of the semester, there was a list with topics for presentations. We were all supposed to go and sign up for that. Um, and since, you know, I was an adult student, I felt a bit apprehensive to, you know, jump and sign up uh, 
first on that list. So I just stayed, uh, you know, towards the end. And by the time it got to me, the only presentation topic that was still available was epistemology because probably people just didn't know what that meant. So they were apprehensive to sign up for it. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I didn't know what that meant either, to be honest. So I just signed up for that. Um, as it turns out, it was uh, a presentation on Fred Bretzky's paper, Epistemic Operators, which to the day is my favorite text ever written uh, in philosophy. I love that paper. It took me forever to wrap my mind around it. I'm still not sure that I, that I fully understand what's going on in there. But it was quite scary for me in the beginning because it was somewhat technical. And, you know, after I put in all that effort into that paper, there was so much sunk cost that I just continued doing epistemology. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's the story. Um, but uh, about, you know, my general specialism uh, um, at the intersection between philosophy of language and epistemology is, is actually not that strange looking back, if you think about it, that a professional journalist would end up being interested in things like the normativity of speech acts and how much evidence we need in order to assert something. That's, that does sound like something that hopefully uh, all journalists are interested in. Right, right. It's funny. We, we seem to have lived like parallel lives to, <laughs> to a large extent, except, of course, I didn't end up really in epistemology, but more in um, uh, science and uh, mind but language as well. Um, so let me, uh, so um, shifty speech and independent thought. I mean, um, there's a number, number of different elements that are, that are all being combined here, right? Um, between philosophy of language and epistemology um, in, you know, the norms of assertion of, you know, when you can assert something and when you can't and things like that. Um, so for somebody who is not an expert, um, in these areas or in this intersection of areas between, you know, language and knowledge, um, can you kind of lay out the general background, um, for, you know, what, what the main sort of moves are, what the main issue is that you are addressing in the book? Yeah. So Maybe maybe I should just start by by telling you a bit the puzzle that, about the puzzle that motivated the project to begin with. Um, so here are some things that sound plausible, whether you're a specialist in epistemology or not. So one thing that sounds plausible to me, um, and you know, I, I gather to all of us pretty theoretically, is that whether you know or not does not depend on how much you care about it. So I can't come to know by just starting to care less about the subject matter, right? That seems plausible, right? So it can't be the case that, you know, just because now I, I care less about the topic, I need less evidence or less epistemic support uh, to come to know uh, about that topic. That sounds, that sounds right. And another thing that sounds right to many people in epistemology is that before you say something, you should make sure you know what you're saying, right? That you shouldn't say things that you don't know. And that, you know, is supported by a lot of, uh, you know, everyday linguistic data, right? So we often say things like, you know, challenge people's assertions by saying, oh, how do you know that? Or even more aggressively, do you really know that? Um, and it also seems as though it's enough. If we know what we're talking about, we can go ahead and say, that's perfectly fine, right? So you know, think about the case in which I say, well, Carrie, you knew it was raining outside, why didn't you say something? I should have, you know, taken an umbrella. So this criticism of you seems right. Uh, and the reason why it seems right must be that uh, knowledge is enough for assertion, right? As soon as you know it, you can go ahead and say it. So this is also something that sounds right. And here is the third bit of the puzzle uh, and the last bit. It looks intuitive um, that uh, in high-stakes scenarios, we should back our claims with more evidence than in low-stakes scenarios. Can so it explain? seems intuitive yeah. that if you and I are talking about the weather, uh, it's fine for me to you know, tell you that it's going to be raining tomorrow without being a meteorologist or, or doing particularly thorough investigation in the issue. Um, while if I'm a doctor and I'm here to announce you that you have cancer, uh, I should 
better, you know, be pretty sure that you do. I should better have a lot of evidence at my disposal. I should better have checked uh, a lot of times before telling you this. So this is a puzzle because it would seem as though, you know, on the one hand, if knowledge is insensitive to practical stakes, I should be able to say things uh, uh, to you independently of the stakes, right? But then again, uh, this last datum that, that I mentioned suggests that that's not correct, that indeed stakes matter for uh, what is permissible for us to say. So, you know, this puzzle is annoying in that... <laughs> Many people, the vast majority of people in the literature, for the longest time, thought that it faces us with a dilemma. We need to either abandon the very plausible thought that we started with, that knowledge, whether you know or not, is insensitive to practical stakes, which is a nice, nice thing that maybe we don't want to abandon at all. Uh, or if we don't want to abandon that, we need to abandon the knowledge norm of assertion. So we need to... Con- to uh, to um, think that uh, knowledge is either not necessary or not sufficient for for outright asserting things, and both of these two things, people thought were, you know, valuable um, theoretical claims that we shouldn't abandon, and that it's a big sacrifice to abandon either of them. And what motivated this book is an attempt to not have to do that. So an attempt to keep both of these claims uh, and still be able to accommodate the data on the ground, the data that suggests that there's a variation uh, in the amount of evidence that you need um, in order to assert things depending on stakes. Okay, good, good. So you've, you've sort of gone through what I take to be the shiftiness intuition uh, yeah, right. the shiftiness intuition is exactly the intuition that if the stakes are really high, you should check more times <laughs> than when the stakes are low. Yeah, yeah, right. And then the shiftiness dilemma, of course, is the one that you just presented, right? Yeah. Okay. Right. Um, so uh, y- you you offer a different number of maneuvers, right? You go through a different number of maneuvers for responding to this um, dilemma um, before you give your own sort of solution to it. Um, uh, one of these you call the an epistemic warranted assertability maneuver, um, and then a different one that you call a pragmatic warranted assertability maneuver. Um, can you, uh, you know, so can can you get us a bit started on how what these two maneuvers, two different types of maneuvers are for responding to the the dilemma? Yeah, sure. So I'm going to start with the epistemic uh, warranted assertability maneuver because I take it as, in a way, the least ambitious uh, one um, in a, in a scheme of maneuvers. So. <laughs> To, to get rid of this in that it doesn't really try to solve the dilemma, but it rather grabs one of its horns. Uh, so this, um, these people uh, think the dilemma holds and are very keen on keeping knowledge pure, so on not having to concede that knowledge is something that is in any way dependent on practical stakes. And in order to keep that pure, what you need to do is uh, abandon the knowledge norm uh, of assertion, so so you know, blame the variability with stakes on the normativity of assertion. So these people think, uh, no, knowledge has you know, knowledge is pure; it has no, is not affected by practical stakes. The reason why we see this shiftiness in propriety of speech is because knowledge is not the norm of proper assertion. The norm of proper assertion varies with stakes. You need more epistemic support in high stakes scenarios in order to assert. Uh, and less epistemic support in low-stakes scenarios in order to assert. Uh, So you can see how by divorcing the norm of assertion from knowledge, you don't get this kind of practical um, threat to to the purity of knowledge anymore. You just get a practically um, infused normativity of assertion. So, you know, it's it's the next best thing. I, I mean, I think that... If we didn't have any other option, this would be the best way to go. I think it's better to lose the, nor- the knowledge norm of assertion than to, than to get a practically infused view of knowledge altogether. 
Right. Um, well, me, in terms me... of, you know, prior possibility. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, well, is, is, there a, is there a way uh, in which, you know, the, 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 the not, you know, the evidence that you might need, you know, to be able to, you know, for knowledge um, would be one thing. And then uh, how much, how much evidence you need to provide verbally let's say, you know, is sort of a, you know, that might shift. So in other words, uh, you know, m maybe the idea is just that uh, in a, in a, say a low stakes scenario, you just, you just say a little bit. Um, and in a higher stakes scenario, you just have to say a whole lot more, but that's just a difference in how much reason, how, you know, how much you talk about, you know, how much you offer to your interlocutor yeah. rather than any shift at all in either uh, the knowledge, you know, the knowledge norm of assertability or, uh, you know, the idea that knowledge is invariant across context. Yeah, so that's, that's actually a, a way to go that um, I think some of the defenders of this view um, would like, but two things to say about this. So one, one thing to say is that insofar as you keep the knowledge norm for assertion, but you supplement it with a requirement that you need to, you know, discursively justify your claim and that this discursive justification is the one varying with stakes, um, you still need to explain uh, the, the shiftiness data. You still haven't explained the shiftiness data on the ground because now you have a knowledge norm of assertion. You have an, a pure view of knowledge. So knowledge is not uh, practically encroached upon, uh, but you have the intuition that uh, you need more evidence in order to assert, not just in order to justify discursively. So it, you still need to give us some error theory. So one thing that you could say is, well, look, actually the intuition about assertability is driven by the by the this discursive justification demands so the way you, you could go is say look as you as you well put it in high stakes cases you need to provide your hero with more evidence and that's what's driving the intuition that you need more evidence not the norm of assertion itself so you could do that but here's the second problem um, the problem is a normative one so the question that arises is, why is it that you need in high-stakes scenarios to provide your audience with more evidence to back your assertion, right? So it, it, this needs to be something normative, right? So it can't just be that it usually is the case that people ask for more evidence because maybe they're not entitled to. Right? Just because, you know, it might be that usually people don't believe what women say and they ask for more evidence, that doesn't mean that they're entitled to, right, to be sexist. So what you need is something normatively kosher, as it were. You want something that entitles your hearer to expect more evidence as a way of discursive justification in high-stakes scenarios, right? So as soon as you have something normative that's needed there, the question is going to be, well, what's the source of that normativity? Why is it that the hearer is entitled to ask for more evidence in high-stakes scenarios? And then if the question, the question needs, the answer needs to be in terms of epistemic normativity, because what we're talking about is the epistemic norm of assertion and discursive justification. So basically, you end up saying, well, there is an epistemic norm that asks for more evidence in high stakes cases. And that's just your way right back into practical encroachment on, on, the, on knowledge and the normativity of belief, right? Because the, the obvious thing to say is, well, the hearer in high, high stakes scenarios is entitled to ask for more evidence from the speaker because they need more evidence in order to form the belief. And there you go, you have practical encroachment on knowledge, and you don't want that. Um, the other way to, yeah, so basically, insofar as you want this demand on the speaker for more discursive justification to be normatively all right, so to be a demand that is that curers are entitled to have on speakers, you need to explain the source of that entitlement. Yeah, and as soon as you try to explain that, the worry is that you fall right back into the 
pragmatic encroachment on knowledge uh, that you're trying to avoid to begin with. I see. Okay, good, good. That was helpful. Um, so we were so we we're talking about some of the options before we get to your um, your solution. Um, and I think we were at we were at epistemic warranted assertability um, as a kind of an easy road would be, which would be nice, but we can't have it. Um, uh, so do you want to pick up where we were, sort of before I? Yeah, yeah. So the so that's about the the epistemic uh, assertability maneuver. Now, a nicer way to go, if it were to succeed, but I argue in my book that it doesn't, is the pragmatic warranted assertability maneuver that's been championed most notably by people by Pat- like uh, Patrick Rissu. So on this view, um, knowledge is not pragmatically encroached, and the norm of assertion is not pragmatically encroached either, be it knowledge or whatever you want it to be. So both of these things are pure. There's no pragmatic encroachment on either of them. But one thing that's happening is that, is that there is a, a felt variation in propriety that pertains to the pragmatics of language, to implicatures generated in high-stakes contexts that are not generated in low-stakes contexts. So this is a, uh, it's call, I call it a pragmatic warranted assertability maneuver because it has very little to do with epistemology. If you want, it, it pertains, it, all of its resources are sourced in the pragmatics of language. In in basically the the nature and normativity of implicatures. So what these philosophers want to say is that basically when I say in a high-stakes context that I know that P, I'm implying, even though I'm not saying, I'm implying that I can uh, dismiss all the uh, error possibilities that are relevant to the context. And since in high-stakes context, more error possibilities are salient, because that's how high-stakes context, you know, rolled, um, I am basically uh, uh, lying to you via my implicature if that's not the case. So if, if I'm not able to dismiss all of these error possibilities that are made salient by the high stakes, uh, but I am implying that I can, you are going to form the false belief that I can. Um, so that's that's what makes this uh, this impermissible. So it's not the case that I can't um, assert uh, at high stakes cases because I don't because knowledge uh, is not enough. No, knowledge is enough for assertion. The problem is, however, that as soon as I make that assertion, I am bound to trigger this impermissible implicature that is likely to cause false beliefs in you. That's why I should abstain from doing that. If, if I can't dismiss all the error possibilities. So you can see how this is a nicer way to go because it, uh, it escapes a dilemma rather than grabbing a horn thereof. It doesn't need to abandon the knowledge norm of assertion, nor does it need to accept encroachment on knowledge, pragmatic encroachment on knowledge. So that's nice. Uh, it's a nicer way to go for, the, for someone who has a very purist taste, if you want, in, the, in epistemological matters. This is a preferred way to go because we can get to keep the knowledge norm of assertion and the uh, and uh, you know classical invariant is purism about knowledge and knowledge attributions. Right, um, but you think I it fails? The, <laughs> I think it fails. Yeah. So I, what I argue in the book is that it works well for assertions that explicitly uh, mention knowledge. So assertions that involve knowledge attributions. So when I say in high stakes scenarios. I know that you have cancer, um, then indeed it is plausible that these implicatures are triggered, uh, and as a result, uh, I'm you know, likely to generate false beliefs in you. But if I don't explicitly attribute knowledge to myself, but I just make the simple assertion, you have cancer, it's not clear how this way to account for the data is going to generalize. So it's not clear... Uh, what the defender of this view is going to have to say about cases where I don't attribute knowledge to myself. It's not clear why it is uh, that I, if I say I have, you have cancer, why is it that I'm triggering an implicature that uh, I've dismissed all other error uh, possibilities? So I, I'm not saying, you know, I don't think that I have a knockdown argument against uh, this way of, of thinking about things in the book. I'm just 
um, and for what is worth, there's not a lot that the defenders of the view itself have have written on the topic. I think Alan Hyslop is the only one who has explicitly addressed this problem of the of generalizing the view to to assertions that don't involve knowledge attributions. And I think that Alan Hazlitt's way is not very convincing in that he needs to appeal to the notion of an implicature generating implicature. So, you know, a second order implicature, which is a, you know, hard notion to, to buy into, <laughs> if you see what I mean. Um, so I think that the, the Hazlitt solution to this is not very convincing. I am considering in the book other solutions that are not put forth by any of the um, of the defenders of the view themselves, but that have been suggested to me in conversation by Sandy Goldberg, with whom I've, you know, talked about this book, uh, you know, probably one time too many for Sandy. Um, And he suggested some ways to go uh, that these people might want to take, and I'm considering them, and I eventually find them wanting. But, you know, for what is worth, um, I think that... uh, you know, the view still still has potential. There might still be a way of developing this this view to generalize to assertions that don't include uh, knowledge attributions. Um, but uh, that's why I'm saying I don't I don't know that I have a knockdown argument, but I don't have a a lot to work with either because not many of this uh, of the champions have considered the problem. Okay, so there's also. Um... So I'm trying to I'm trying to get through you know understand some of the you know alternatives here and um, another one was the what what you call KK compatibilism you know knowing that you know uh, compatibilism uh, could, how does how does that one try to resolve the issue Yeah so um, th- th- what I call KK compatibilism is strictly speaking. Uh, Tim Williamson's uh, reply to this uh, to this problem to the problem of uh, shiftedness of proper speech. Um, so, in a in a two thousand and five article, Williamson considers the contextualist uh, cases, and uh, you know, since he's one of the main champions of the knowledge norm of assertion, uh, and also a big fan of purism for knowledge in general. Uh, he, of course, feels compelled to do something to avoid, uh, to escape the dilemma altogether. Um, and what he proposes is that uh, what's to blame here uh, is not um, what's to blame in these cases in which we feel like we need more evidence in order to properly assert is not that we lack uh, the needed evidential support for assertion proper assertion. He thinks, no, we have it. We know, therefore we can assert. What we lack and what drives the intuition that there's something fishy going on, he thinks, is higher order knowledge. So Tim thinks that what's going on, uh, and for instance, um, the classical contextualist bank cases, right? So what you have is the Rose is driving by the bank with his wife uh, in the low stakes scenario. There's nothing hinging uh, on it. Uh, he sees there's a huge line in front of the bank. Uh, it's a Friday, and he tells his wife, "Look, um, I know banks are open on Saturday as well. I've been there, um, you know, three weeks ago. Uh, so how about we don't stop now to deposit our uh, our salary? We just uh, come back tomorrow on Saturday and deposit it. So there's the low stakes scenario and high stakes scenario. Same thing happens, only now it's a high stakes case in which it's really important that they deposit this money." because they have a check coming in on Monday that's going to bounce if the money is not in the account. And the intuition is supposed to be, again, that given that now the stakes are raised, um, the rows can't properly, properly assert, I know that the bank will be open on Saturday based on, mere, on merely his memory from uh, three weeks ago. So what, what Tim has to say about this case is, well, look, uh, memorial beliefs from you know, three weeks ago about bank schedules uh, are borderline cases of knowledge. They're cases of knowledge, but they're you know they fall in in that kind of uh, border um, w- w- between you know knowledge and not enough justification, as it were, for knowledge. And because they're borderline like that, uh, as in general with borderline cases, we have a hard time knowing that that we know. So we have a hard time knowing that the condition obtains in case in borderline cases right so we have 
a hard time knowing that something is a heap in borderline cases of heapness, right? In the same way, we have a hard time knowing that we know in borderline cases of knowledge. So he thinks basically that in high stakes cases, people shouldn't just know what they're doing. They should know that they know uh, because so much hinges on it. That's the prudent thing, uh, as he puts it. Uh, so that's why we tend to find that the rose shouldn't just go ahead in the high stakes case and say, oh, I know the bank will be open tomorrow based on his mere memorial belief. Uh, because even though he does know, he doesn't know that he knows. So that's that's Tim's way out of it. And um, John Turi later on has a similar take on the case with a with a speech act theoretic twist to it, in that he thinks that indeed Tim is right. What is needed at that case is knowledge of knowledge. But that's because in high stakes cases we don't assert anymore. We guarantee. So he thinks that what speech acts we perform depends on the context. And that in high-stakes cases, when we say that P, we don't assert that P, we guarantee that P. And guaranteeing requires higher-order knowledge. So you can see how it's the same move, but motivated differently, um, if you want. But the move is the same. The point is, what's required in this case is higher-order knowledge. And with, if you don't have it, you can't go ahead and assert. Um, and the problem that I find with this case is... Um, is, you know, one problem is one that I haven't discovered myself, but rather Jessica Brown has uh, pointed it out early on in the debate uh, that you can build, so that even though it's plausible um, uh, that higher order knowledge might be missing in this the Rose Bank cases, we can think of new cases in which higher order knowledge is clearly present. We build a case such that it's, you know, it's a very strongly assume that higher order knowledge is present, if it ever is, and still get this uh, impropriety intuition. Um, so that's Jessica. Yeah, so Jessica has a case, a case of testimonial knowledge from an expert, where, you know, the expert tells you that P, because you know that they're an expert, it is plausible that you know, and that you know that you know, because it's not the borderline case of knowledge. After all, it is knowledge from experts so that should be you know pretty strong um but still if the if you raise the stakes high enough it looks as though uh you should look further before acting or asserting uh if a lot hinges on it basically so the point is that even though uh, kk the kk move might solve the particular contextualist cases put forth by the rose uh, the, the lack of higher order knowledge can't be what explains general variation of proper assertability with stakes because we can build cases uh, in which the variation remains even though we have KK. Okay. Um, well, let me just, you know, I mean, I found DeRose's bank cases kind of odd in the sense that, um, you know, in the one, in, in, the, in the high stakes case where it's like... Uh, you know, they have to deposit the check or this other check will bounce or something. Um, he puts in there that, you know, he's as confident in that case as he is in the other. And I was just wondering, um, it, it seems to me that there's an element of uh, some sort of, uh, there's, a, there's a psychological shiftiness of, um, in, certain, in a low-stakes case, uh, you can say, you know, maybe on the basis of, as you put it, mere memory of bank hours from three weeks ago, you'll be, you, you can, you'll assert, you know, oh yeah, it'll be open Saturday morning. Um, but then when you're sort of more worried about the, you know, whether you're right or not, uh, your confidence level uh, is undermined or should be. In, in DeRose's case, his confidence isn't affected at all. And I just sort of wondered, mine would be. <laughs> um, so um, that just seems to be a different, is, is that a different um, element of shiftiness that's going on in these cases where it's not a matter of, you know, you've got a certain amount of evidence that you might say objectively, uh, you know, that's, that's, you know, you, you know, right. So you have the, you know, invariant knowledge or pure um, knowledge and, um, you've got some sort of knowledge-based assertion for uh, 
uh, norm for assertion where, you know, you can assert if you know. And then what, what, you know, ends up kind of shifting is merely your confidence in whether you feel, uh, yeah, whether you feel confident that you know or not, which, which just seems to be a completely different sort of aspect where, you know, it's hard to know what the norm, there doesn't seem to be a norm of confidence, right? People just have various levels of confidence in what they say to the extent where it can be entirely divorced from knowledge, in fact. <laughs> yeah, so there are two, two things about this. So first, uh, I completely share your intuition that that's a weird stipulation to put in. I remain equally confident. Well, why do you remain equally confident? <laughs> What's wrong with you? <laughs> I, I, I completely agree with, with your intuition. Uh, and indeed, um, Jennifer Nagel has shared our intuition and has proposed that what's going on in this case is uh, affords a psychological explanation. Knowledge is the norm of assertion, but the rose doesn't have it anymore because he loses belief. And since you can't have knowledge without belief, that's why the rose can't assert, because he loses belief. He loses confidence in the proposition, and thereby he doesn't fully believe it anymore. If you don't fully believe something, you don't know it. If you don't know it, you can't assert it. There you go. Uh, knowledge norm of assertion in the clear uh, as well as purism about knowledge. So that's one way to go. Um, now, two problems. Uh, basically, I, I think that Nagel's account and um, your suggestion about confidence, even independently of full belief, even if you don't you know, have, take a view of what exactly is the relation of confidence and full belief, uh, I think that the main the main problem for going psychological is the following. Uh, the question, again, is a normative question that arises. Should one lose their confidence in high-stakes scenarios, or should one not? Uh, if it is the case that one should lose confidence in, in high-stakes scenarios, so if you want to say, well, actually, you, you should abandon your belief in high-stakes scenarios, then you're back into... Uh, pragmatic encroachment on knowledge. If you're losing your knowledge because of mere practical stakes, even though your evidential base, basis remains the same. So you don't want that. On the other hand, if you want a purely psychological explanation, you, want, you might want to say, well, you shouldn't lose your belief. Your belief should stay put because you know, and that's enough. Uh, but you, you know, irrationally, we are, you know, we are skittish creatures like rabbits. We just lose confidence even though we shouldn't. In this kind of cases, uh, if you want to say that, uh, uh, you can always imagine counterexamples of uh, stubborn believers. And unfortunately, the intuition is going <laughs> to survive. A lot of those, yeah. Yeah. So unfortunately, even if, you, even if you stipulate like the rose does, that you're a stubborn believer that completely resists any evidence against their belief, and in indeed these days, they're everywhere, uh, you, there's the intuition that you shouldn't assert remains, right? So even if if you build into the case that you're you're one of these dogmatic people, fully confident, it's still the intuition that you shouldn't go ahead and say that the bank will be open in the high stakes scenario is preserved, which seems to which seems to suggest, of course, that the intuition is independent of the level of confidence of the speaker. Right, or you, you shouldn't epistemically. For epist yeah, epistemically, yeah. Well, so far, we are still in the epistemic land. Uh, right. Or at least we are not yet distinguishing between sources of normativity, which is what, what my solution basically relies on. Right. Well, why don't we, why don't we go into that then? Because um, I think that's sort of the crux of everything is, you know, the different sources of, of normativity here. Um, yeah, so that's, my solution relies on the thought um, that this dilemma is a misguided dilemma to begin with. Um, so here is roughly what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, yes, the data that speed, that assertion on mere knowledge in very high-stakes scenarios is impermissible is correct. There's, there's nothing wrong with that intuition. That's correct. In high-stakes scenarios, we need more evidence to assert than in low-stakes scenarios. But the source of this need is not an epistemic one, I claim. So, you know, in... A different context, different norma normative uh, pressures apply. 
right? So we are all under different normative constraints in all possible contexts, right? So take a case in which I'm just driving down the road. At that point, I am subject to prudential norms. I should, you know, make sure that I stay alive and healthy. Subject to traffic norms, I should make sure I don't break traffic norms. Uh, moral norms, I, you know, should make sure that I protect other traffic participants from, um, you know, harm. Um, so all of these norms at contexts, of course, interact. And what usually happens is they deliver an all things considered permissibility, right? So depending on normative strength, you're going to get, uh, uh, if you want a requirement at the context that is all things considered, i.e. at the end of all of this normative interactions, right? Now, what I claim is that when we find something impermissible, whether it's a speech act or an act or a belief or what have you, at a particular context, that intuition is driven by all things considered normativity. So my intuition that your speech act that towards your patient that, you have, that they have cancer is impermissible at a particular context is driven by all things considered contextual permissibility. So it's it's the permissibility at the end of the normative calculus after taking into consideration all interactions of norms, right? And that's clearly, you know, clearly the case that that's our, what our intuition tracks, right? So uh, let's take a case from Jessica Brown that I like very much. Even if you know that your, bold, that your boss is bold, because you can see with your own eyes that your boss is bold, it's still not permissible at any context to tell your boss that he's bold. Why? Well, because prudential norms pertaining to, you know, you're keeping your job and feeding your children override the epistemic norm of assertion that permits you to assert if you know, right? And similarly, what my account claims is that these high-stakes scenarios is the prudential normativity that drives the bar for epistemic support high, not epistemic normativity. So on my view, the epistemic norm of assertion, so the norm that tells you what is a good assertion from a purely epistemic point of view, from the point of view of, you know, transmitting knowledge. Uh, knowledge is the, nor- the epistemic norm of assertion. Knowledge is both necessary and sufficient for asserting from a purely epistemic point of view. Compatibly, other norms can come and override this requirement and thus move the evidentiary requirements both up and down, Right. So one case, uh, one classical case of evidential requirements being moved down by interaction with prudential norms is a case by Tim Williamson that uh, I dubbed the trained case, where what's going on is we both head towards the train station. I am late. You see a train uh, just, you know, coming into the station. And even though you don't know that it's my train, because, you know, there's some possibility that, that it is, you shout, I see your train, run. And, you know, you don't know that it's my train, so epistemically speaking, you shouldn't have said that, but prudentially you've done me, you know, quite a bit of a favor because even if the probability is super low, it's still worth running after it. Maybe it is my train. And if it is my train, I'm going to catch it because you, you assert it epistemically impermissibly, but prudentially permissibly. So this is a case in which the, the epistemic demands... Um, uh, are in conflict to the prudential demands in that epistemology wants you to only assert if you know, but you know the practical domain say, says, you know what, there's a little chance that it might be the, her train, so it better shout at her and and you know draw her attention to it. Uh, so that, but that you can see how the evidentiary requirements are driven down here by prudential concerns from knowledge that's required by epistemic standards to lower than knowledge, right? Uh, and what I claim is that the Rose's Bank cases, or in general high-stakes cases, are just the other side of that coin. That they're just cases in which the evidential requirements are driven up by the prudential norm, even though the epistemic norm for assertion remains fixed at knowledge. So according to my account, what's happening in these cases is that there is a prudential norm that forbids the rose from saying, yeah, it's all right, the bank will be open tomorrow. Because should he say that, very likely the wife would conclude that they don't need to stop to deposit the check today, which would be prudentially too risky for them, given what's coming on Monday. And now, of course, the question is, 
okay, so I, uh, you know, the my uh, opposition claims it's the epistemic norm that's driving this requirement up, and thereby knowledge they take it is encroached by the pragmatic. Uh, I claim, no, it's not the epistemic norm, it's the prudential norm that's driving these requirements up. The question is, how do we decide who's right uh, between, uh, between me and my opponent? And I think there are two things I have to, that I have to say about this. We can't decide, no, three things. We can't decide based on mere intuition, that's for sure, because, again, the intuition tracks all things considered permissibility. We need theory to look into what norm drives that all things considered permissibility. Um, Secondly, the fact that my opponent agrees that in the train case that I just mentioned, what's going on is a prudential norm overriding the epistemic norm and draw, uh, basically drawing the bar lower makes it such that my account is better than theirs because it's simpler. On my account, prudential norms are doing it in the, in, in the train case and in the bank case. It's, so on my view, prudential norms can go both up and down. On their view, they're going to have to accept that they can drag the amount of support needed down, but not accept that they can do it, that they can do it upwards, which is a weird thing to do normatively. It's a very strange thing to think that the norm can lower the amount of a particular condition that needs to be instantiated, but it can't make it higher. So that that's just a strange thing that requires further explanation. So on, on grounds of you know prior possibility and simplicity, my my view is better. Uh, and third, I also deliver in the book um, an independent rationale to think that I'm right, which is not, you know, essential to my explanation of the data. If you don't, if one doesn't like my particularly favorite rationale, one can still preserve my explanation of the data. But I think it helps support my explanation of the data. Uh, and the, my rationale is sourced in my preferred idea that norms are sourced in functions. Um, so in the idea that um, the, the norm of assertion is sourced in its function and that assertion is going to have epistemic functions like, for instance, generating knowledge, but also prudential functions like, you know, saving our lives and to keep on keeping our checks from bouncing um, and social functions of making conversation and so on. Assertion serves many functions. And the way to identify what norm is active at the context is by looking at what function is observed. And that's easier to track by our intuitions, functions, uh, easier than norms. Uh, and it seems clear to me that at the, uh, at the De Rose Bank case, for instance, it is the prudential function that is observed when De Rose doesn't uh, attribute knowledge to himself in the high-stakes scenario, the prudential function of avoiding a you know disastrous result where the check would bounce on Monday, right. uh, rather than the epistemic function of knowledge generating. Uh, so, so if if yeah. if you buy into that, you're going to buy into my account rather than my opponents in a nutshell. Right. So um, ha- what then do you, do you have anything any explanation of how uh, are there any rules to this um, shiftiness in the you know, all things considered, um, permissibility judgment. I mean, so you've got, uh, you know, let me, let me just, you know, elaborate that a little bit. Um, so, you know, you've got, uh, you know, shifty, you, you've got assertions, their assertability that shifts in context. Um, and this is because we are trying to track what you, you know, all things considered permissibility. Um, and in all things considered, permissibility, uh, you know, sometimes the epistemic norms will, uh, you know, uh, you know, have more weight and sometimes the pragmatic concerns of various types uh, will outweigh the epistemic ones. Um, uh, and so there's a, there's a kind of a weighing that's going on between all the different sorts of uh, permissibility types or subtypes that are going on and they all kind of get crunched together and outcomes and all things considered judgment. And I'm, my question is just, do you have any insight into that sort of process of why certain things, uh, why certain elements of the all, all things considered permissibility judgment 
uh, come to the fore in some context and why others come to the fore in others? I do, but they're more speculative than what we've been talking about so far, because basically your absolutely very interesting question is a question in meta-epistemology, right? The question is, what's the normative force of epistemic norms? Why, why is it that they have any? And how does this normative force interact with the normative force of other types of norms? What makes some norms heavier than others? Um, and... I do have a big picture view um, on this that I don't argue for in detail in this book. I hope to be able to argue for in a, in a, f- a future work. Um, the, the, the question basic, I mean, we, we have very many views on how to uh, calculate reasons for and against in the literature of, on reasons. So there are many recipes, uh, some better than others over there. My preferred view is this kind of very simple view where when you have two kind of alternatives, what is it What is it for a reason to be a reason um, against alternative A? Well, it is for it to be a reason for alternative B, if you want. So that's how the weighing goes, um, just very roughly. Uh, but there are very many views about how this weighing is supposed to work. What, what it all amounts to, however, as you well put it, is well, what gives this weight to the reason? So it's one thing how you calculate given if you have the weights, and it's another thing, well, what gives the weight to begin with, right? Um, and in my view, I'm, I have a very simple-minded, if you want, a monist view of value or whereby it all eventually amounts to the value of survival, so the, it all eventually amounts to prudential value, um, but it's not it. So in a way, in that sense, I am on the side of the pragmatic encroacher in that I do believe that, you know, everything normative is actually just eventually going to be sourced in, uh, you know, prudential value. Um, but I do the difference between me and the pragmatic encroacher is the, of uh, is structural in that the pragmatic encroacher is a variety if you want of act consequentialism so the pragmatic encroacher thinks that our practical goals are going to kind of be directly affecting our epistemic statuses so if now i need i'm in a high stakes scenario it is now that knowledge will mean something else than in the previous scenario as it were uh, my view is is more in line with Ernie Sosa's uh, type, kind of value theoretic view, whereby the point is: look, yes, we need uh, a lot of we every, all the norms in all domains are eventually aimed at our survival, but they're not directly aimed at it. So it's not the case that every norm in every domain aims at survival on the spot in an act-consequentialistic way, but rather it's, a, it's in a rule-consequentialistic way in the following sense. We have separate value domains, so we have the epistemological domain, the cooking domain, you know, the domain of uh, you know, higher education, and these domains, uh, doing well in these domains is important for our survival, so in that sense they're all, uh, if you're unsubordinate to the value of survival, but they have inside norms that organize the domain. So the domain has a central value. In my case, according to my taste, the central value of the domain of the epistemic is knowledge. And all the norms internal to the domain are trying to serve knowledge. So they are there in order to get us to to generate knowledge, to, to acquire knowledge. And why is that? Well, because knowledge in turn is good for our survival most of the time. So that's in that sense, it's all at the end of the day subordinate to the survival value. But that doesn't mean that all of these norms in the domain are going to be survival oriented directly. They're only going to be survival oriented indirectly in that they're going to try to generate knowledge. So this picture, in a way, tells you how an epistemic norm is going to fare against, uh, for instance, prudential norm. It's going to fare poorly <laughs> because. <laughs> Because we, what we care about is survival. So if for my survival now is better to break the epistemic norm, well, then I'm going to break it. And that's fine. If you put a gun to my head and tell me to, to lie, I'm going to lie until, you know, the day is over. It's no problem at all. So in my, in my mind, that's what explains all this overriding phenomenon. That's what explains what, the fact that epistemic norms are so vulnerable to prudential normativity overriding. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
You're treading into dangerous territory for epistemologists. <laughs> I know, I know I am. But, uh, you know, again, this is not something that I argue for in, in a lot of detail. It's just my, you know, it's just my taste in things, uh, if you want. What's important about this picture is that if it's right, so, you know, absent any argument for it, let's just at least look at it, whether it's a, it has any benefits, should it be true. Uh, it it's nice in that it respects the insight by the pragmatic encroacher that you know at the end of the day beliefs are there to help us survive to get, help us gather food and stay away from predators and that's you know a valuable insight uh, but on the other hand it also preserves the independence of the epistemic which explains the title of the book uh, in that uh, the domain itself is normatively independent. It's only organized around the value of knowledge. All epistemic norms flow out of, uh, out of knowledge. So we have all these norms just to help us generate knowledge, which again, in turn, is good for our survival. But the norms themselves don't serve survival. They serve uh, knowledge generation. So that gives, gives me um, the independence of the epistemic domain normatively from practical considerations. I see. Well, cool. I mean, I hope that will, uh, I, I assume you'll be writing on something. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, so, it's, it sounds very, very, you know, at least, you know, prima facie compelling to me um, because that seems, just seems to be the way so much of assertion and testimony works in general. Um, well, let me just, uh, let me ask one more kind of substantive question before I, before we have to go. Um, uh, so you go through a number of different ways of uh, looking at different types of speech acts um, and there are different sorts of um, uh, epistemic normativity involved in each of these. Like, so in, in, if you're conjecturing something or if you're telling something um, or if you're asserting something moral, right? Moral assertion. Um, and, uh, I just want to focus on the last one, you know, moral assertion, um, because that's, you, you sort of say, well, you know, moral assertion, the other two, you know, we can kind of give a similar story as we gave before. Um, but moral assertion is special. Um, and, uh, and, you, and you argue that, um, you know, the epistemic factors uh, are really uh, sort of most weighty or something in these, in these contexts. So can you can you say something about what makes moral assertion special in these shifty cases? Yeah, this is for me. This is the most exciting part of the book because it's the most recent one. Um, the other the other stuff has been developed over very very many years. Uh, this is more recent work, so I'm more excited about it. Of course, we all are more excited about our more recent work, I guess. Um, so what I find really cool about this part of the book is that it's very surprising to, to anybody who works in speech act theory. So here's one thing that you would expect. You would expect that weaker speech acts, like, for instance, conjecture, are going to be governed by a weaker norm, right? So conjecture is a weaker speech act than assertion, at least at first glance, because it looks as though you are kind of committing less, right, to the content uh, than you are with outright assertion. So you'd expect the norm is weaker. On the other hand, you would expect that moral assertion is just assertion, as the name suggests, right? It's just a species of assertion. So you would expect that, you know, maybe trivially, it's governed by the same norm as, you know, assertion in general. And what I'm saying in this part of the book is that both of these things are exactly the wrong way around, uh, that actually conjecture is governed by a stronger norm, um, than assertion in that it's still a knowledge norm, but it's a, it's a kind of higher order knowledge norm. You're supposed to know that you have warrant um, to to believe, enough warrant uh, to believe, which is more sophisticated because, for instance, you know, unsophisticated cognizers are not going to be able to permissibly assert, by my view. I hope I'm right about this. I hope I'm not, you know, disadvantaging kids for no good reason. Um, so that's one surprising result of the book that I like very much. And to go back to your question, moral assertion, you would think, well, it's just assertion with moral content. Why should it not be governed by knowledge norms still? Um, two things about this. First of all, uh, you know, species, uh, the, the, rela the normative relation between species and types is just s is such that species are going to be governed 
by a norm that's at least as strong as the type because they're going to inherit it from the type, but they can be governed by stronger norms, right? My favorite example is always that uh, of dancing and waltzing. So waltzing is going to be governed by whatever norms govern general dancing, right? You should move to the rhythm or whatever, whatever norms we have for dancing in general. But waltzing is also have, going to have its own norms, right? So it's going to be governed by stronger normativity because it's going to have its species-specific norms as well, right? Or whatever the norms for waltzing are, which you know, I, I still need to Google and look into Wikipedia, whatever I need to write about this example. Uh, so similarly, I claim the intuition, the prima facie intuition that moral assertion should just be governed by knowledge, that's not something that should take for granted because it's just a species of a type that may well be governed by stronger norms. Um, and then what I make is actually a conditional claim. So my conditional claim goes as follows. Many people in the literature on moral testimony think there's something fishy with just you know, coming to believe things based on mere um, uh, testimony about moral matters. So they, they have the intuition that there's something wrong uh, going on. If the way I go about my moral affairs is I ask you, Carrie, Carrie, should I eat meat? And you say no, and I form the belief that it's morally impermissible to eat meat, and I just stop eating meat without putting it through my reasoning capacities at all, right? So there's an intuition there's something fishy with just accepting uh, at face value uh, moral testimony. And one popular explanation of why that might be is that actually... When it comes to moral matters, uh, the goal is epistemically fancier. Uh, It is understanding rather than knowledge. So what we are after when it comes to moral matters is not mere knowledge of moral facts, which, of course, we can get via testimony with no problem at all, is understanding uh, of moral facts. Alison Hills, for instance, thinks that that's the case because um, that's what we need in order to act morally and to be virtuous in turn. We can't just act morally and be virtuous from mere moral knowledge, she thinks. I think she thinks that we need to understand what's going on in order to be a morally virtuous agent. Uh, now, I don't know enough um, about, about this to know whether what these people say is right. I do know enough about understanding, though, to, to think that there's more to it uh, than knowledge in that you also need... To, this knowledge to be properly systematic. Um, Chris Kelp has an account that I like uh, very much about how understanding is systematic knowledge. It needs to be interconnected in the right way. Uh, and if that's the case, so if Alison Hills is right that our goals when it comes to moral matters of fact, our epistemic goal is not knowledge, is understanding. Uh, and if all, all people who think that understanding is not fully reducible to knowledge are correct, uh, it seems to suggest that the function of moral assertion is also different than the function of assertion simpliciter. It's not to generate knowledge in people, but to generate understanding. Uh, so that's why I'm saying that I'm defending a conditional claim in this chapter. I'm saying if all these people are right, so if the function of moral assertion is not as per normal assertion to just generate knowledge, but it is to generate understanding of moral facts, then the norm of that's going to follow from this function for moral assertion is also going to be different than the norm for assertion in general, in that it's going to be stronger. And the norm that I propose is a norm that asks for explanation to be proffered. So it asks for speakers to not only say it's wrong to eat meat, but also explain why that's the case, because that is going to be the most reliable way of generating understanding in the audience, right? Me as a speaker, I can't infallibly generate understanding in you. You need to do a bit of work yourself to systematize the knowledge that I give you, right? So you need to kind of do the grasping of the systematicity in order to come to understand. But it is my job to help you do that as much as I can. And my, um, my claim is that by explaining uh, why it is that, uh, you know, the relevant moral fact obtains, uh, is the most reliable way to generate understanding of the relevant fact in you. So that's why the, nor- the norm for moral assertion is going to be a norm that asks on top of knowledge for explanation to be proffered. Again, it's a conditional claim. Conditional of all of this results in the uh, literature on moral testimony being correct. I'm, I'm not a specialist in moral testimony myself, so that's why I'm just taking these results on board uh, and making the conditional claim. 
Okay. Well, that that's yeah. That sounds like uh, sounds like something that you would want to be developing, right? Um, so at this point, I mean, we're we're out of time, and uh, maybe you could say just very briefly, what are you working on at the moment? What's what's occupying you at the after you know post book? What's uh, what's on your mind? Oh well, I have many things on my mind. I'm on a I'm on a ERC research project, so I'm 100% um, doing research for the next five years, which is the good news. <laughs> um, so I have plenty of time. The, uh, of course, when you have plenty of time, projects sometimes somehow tend to agglomerate. <laughs> um, so now I'm at the stage where I'm revising uh, the book that I mentioned uh, on the big picture normative stuff where um, it's all about, uh, you know, different functions and different normative domains with, that are internally organized around a particular central value. So all of that, um, I put that into a book and I'm still in the process of revising uh, that in light of um, referee uh, reports. Um, so I'm at the end of that project and I'm preparing to start um, working um more in social epistemology, my, my ERC project is in social epistemology. I'm trying to develop a knowledge-first program for social epistemology, which I think would be a very prolific program that we should we should have because knowledge-first approaches have given such good results in individual uh, mm-hmm. epistemology. So that's a, that's what I'm beginning to work on uh, right now. Excellent. Well, um, congratulations on the on the grant and. Um... Oh yeah, thanks a lot. It's it's amazing. It feels so nice to know that I'm only doing research for so many years to come. That it's is amazing. That's, really. that's magical. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, in any case, uh, we 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 are uh, we are out of time for today. Um, but I do appreciate your taking the time to talk about um, you know, shifty speech and independent thought and, uh, you know, giving us all a a window into a really complicated, but very interesting, um, area of overlap between language and epistemology. So thank you again. Thanks so much for having me. This was amazing. It was, it was so interesting, uh, you know, to, to see, to see what questions uh, might, might, you know, pop into into a philosopher's mind when reading my book. Uh, it's it's been an excellent exercise. Thanks so much for having me, Kerry. Okay, great. Thank you, and uh, bye bye. Good luck with your projects, and uh, we'll you know I'll be looking out for them in the future. Thanks so much. Bye bye. You've been listening to my interview with Mona Simeon, lecturer in philosophy at the University of Glasgow. Her new book, Shifty Speech and Independent Thought, is just out from Oxford University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you once again for listening.